0: Hey, Alan. How are you doing? Super. Hey, everybody listening. We're happy to have you here. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends so we can have even more listeners.
1: Oh, this is the A-B Testing Podcast. There will only be three. Yeah,
0: only be three <laughs> listeners. Yeah. So uh, we are at... N- episode number 65. I like to let Brent say that because I can't count very high. And he's, a, he's like a math guy. Right. Yeah, so uh, we
1: are here once again early in the morning recording a podcast. Brent, how was your last week? It's interesting. Big deal happening in the Jensen household. Um, emptiness syndrome officially starts Wednesday.
0: Is your last child start school? Don't you have a
1: young? You have a young daughter. No, right? was, I said it starts. It doesn't starts. Yeah. first
0: one left. First one he leaves, leaves we Wednesday. But I like to count down the other way, which is the year until they're all gone. So how old is your youngest?
1: Seven. Yeah. She-
0: so I I will be done earlier because my youngest is starting seventh grade in three weeks. And I'm just counting down the days until they're out of the house. And we sell the house and don't tell the kids where we move. <laughs> everybody laughs when I say that like it's a joke. No, I'm... I think
1: like it's, I'm not 100% serious. I think it's fascinating that you have this position already, and oh, your kids aren't teenagers yet. I
0: had it before they were born. <laughs> the, the older one's a teenager. I had it before they were born. I took my daughter clothes shopping yesterday. She is such. She's such a shopper. <laughs> she. It was. Uh, I. I. I did the thing where I sat on a bench in the mall for about an hour and a half while she looked at and tried on clothes. I figured Uh, out what, I I hate malls.
1: It was physically draining on my soul. My daughter isn't old enough for that yet, but I do remember, gosh, I think she was like four, where she and mom went out shopping and she came home. She was like, dad, I made mom buy me two pairs of these shoes just in case one gets dirty. And I'm like, oh my God. She's, like, already into shoes, and she's already four. <laughs> and my wife is not, like, one of those shoe people. I'm like – I, and I have three pairs of shoes. I'm like, I don't know where you're getting this from. <laughs> <laughs> my my son was with us. He, he's massively patient. He's the opposite. Uh,
0: he didn't want to buy any clothes. I finally made him buy a pair of sweats. He's wearing, he wears sweats or shorts and a T-shirt every day. And he has a – Infinite, well, not quite infinite, a continuous, I'll put it, a continuous supply of brand new t-shirts coming in through Loot Crate. You know what Loot Crate is? No. Loot Crate's this thing for like 20 bucks a month, subscription service. Uh, You get a box of stuff every month, which always includes a t-shirt, some sort of little statuettes, some little knickknacks. He did just a general Loot Crate, which is just kind of cool nerdy geek stuff for a while, but now he does Loot Crate gaming. So he gets uh, little little game trinkets, sometimes stickers, uh, figurines, um, but some really cool T-shirts as well. My daughter does Loot Crate anime. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're uh, on a tangent. She, got some, she gets some cool stuff. Uh, Loot Crate is not our sponsor today. No. How old's your son? 13.
1: 13. And the stuff he's getting in Loot Crate gaming... You think it's fi- age appropriate? Yeah, there's no It's is, would a 15-year-old
0: find it age appropriate? You can go to lootcrate.com and check out a, no. and again, man, I they should be sponsoring this show. <laughs> but, uh, lootcrate.com check out the crates, see what they have. Uh
1: I do one thing with my daughter, have you heard of Kidster? No. It's a essentially a, a recipe of the month type of loot crate ah. type thing. So every month there's a theme, every month we have three recipes, and every month she gets some specific tools. Like uh, it's sandwiches this month, and what I do is my daughter and I, it's a a father-daughter thing. My daughter and I, we will pick a recipe, one every weekend. And then, uh, as I mentioned, there are only three recipes. So the fourth one, uh, every week Kidster will send you another recipe in email. But this month, it sandwiches, and one, one of the tools that it came with is a little sandwich cutter. So oh. it's, a, it's about the same size as a regular two-piece-of-bread sandwich. But when you squish it down, it's kind of like a cookie cutter. When you squish it down on top of your sandwich, it automatically cuts off the crusts, and it cuts it into little like um, puzzle pieces. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little four pieces of of puzzle stuff. And we've used that tool. Gosh, um, she got it, I think. That's kind of awesome. Like three days after August started. And we've used it probably 10 times already. That thing's cool.
0: That's pretty cool. (laughs) All right. So, as I mentioned, neither Loot Crate or Kidster nor Kidster are our sponsors. But you know who is? Yes, I do. Who? CoBiton! CoBiton! Our friends at CoBiton, yes. once again sponsoring A-B <laughs> Testing. Uh, if you don't know what CoBiton is, let me tell you a little bit about it, not in my own words. Uh, <laughs> if you're looking for an easier and more affordable way to test your mobile app on real devices, welcome to CoBiton, the complete mobile device cloud platform that gives you access to test on the latest iOS and Android devices when you need them. From manual to automated testing, Cobuton is a simpler, cost-effective way to test your mobile app the way you want with no commitment. For only $0.10 a minute, you can get 100 minutes of testing time for just $10. And the best part is that your minutes never expire. Buy the minutes you need, use them whenever you want, add more when you're ready. It's that easy. So I like this model. I also like that you can do a free trial without a credit card. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, but just by a chunk of minutes, you can test manually on those devices. You can run automated tests on those devices. Almost any device you can imagine. And if you're building, well, who's not building a mobile app today? Uh, something like this is, I think, absolutely necessary. A little more. From automatically generated activity logs to one source for your testing history, Kobotan gives you tools you need to find and fix issues faster true empowering developers and businesses to get their products to market sooner test your mobile web and hybrid apps on all the latest devices and configurations from anywhere anytime sign up for a no commitment free trial at kobaton.com forward slash ab testing to start testing in minutes and as usual i will post that in the uh the blog post that contains this mp3 you're listening to now i'm I remain a big fan of Cobiton and, and tools like this. And again, if you are testing mobile apps and you're trying to build your own mobile lab, please stop. I I, I can't imagine how it could be cost effective uh, using tools like this. And and again, on the minute, on the paying by the minute scheme. Spreading those minutes out across your team, running automation, being strategic about it, uh, all kinds of capital win
1: there. The other thing I was thinking about here is um, the individual angle. Because one of the things that I'm seeing a lot when I'm called in to interview developers, I'm seeing a lot of people who are just app developers and they're the only person. I don't know. I don't know what. If it's cost-effective, but if you're an individual, right, it, you're certainly not going to find a better way to scale. No. It's going to be more cost-effective. If whatever you're building, you need the cross-platform thing, um, this is going to be way more cost-effective than yeah. going out and buying the devices yourself. Absolutely. Um, although I suppose there's the model of uh, getting friends who have different devices to try your app out. You could just
0: crowdsource <laughs> it try it out, but yep. uh, <laughs>
1: mechanical Turk it up.
0: <laughs> there are other companies that are yet to sponsor us, so I won't mention them by name for crowdsourcing. Uh, yeah. A bunch of those. Uh crowdsourcing has really grown in the last uh few years especially. It seems like I see a, f- a new crowdsourcing company every few months.
1: It almost feels like crowdsourcings kind of gotten over the plateau and is no longer the... I,
0: I wonder if it'll get to the tipping point where it's just everything is tested by everybody, which is a lot of what we do in testing and production. Um, they just do it willingly versus unwillingly.
1: Yeah, it's... it's crowdsourcing is just a technique now, I think. It, it's not... Like a lot of the big crowdsourcing companies, I haven't... I haven't heard mention of them in years. Like when U test came out.
0: yeah, U test is still very big uh, applause um, test IO off the top of my head uh, again, naming companies that are not sponsoring this episode, <laughs> but uh, oh, well, uh, yeah. we talk about a lot of things here on AB testing. Hey, I had a vacation last week, which was great. Or let me rephrase that as great as a vacation can be when you spend it with um, your extended family. Which was actually pretty good. My mother in law actually listens to the show sometimes. And <laughs> as I've as I shared on our Slack channel, one of the three uh, she says I'm a little harsh on Brent sometimes. And I say Brent deserves it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm back. And mm. while I was driving, hanging out, I had really had a nice time. I did some kayaking, saw some harbor seals, uh, did some mountain biking down a Mount Constitution, highest point on on Orcas Island, about 2,400 feet, (laughs) but a good five miles down. I had a lot of fun. One thing I pondered is uh, I just recently passed my six-month mark at Unity, uh, where I've been the director of quality for services, and for some reason, reflecting back on my time at Microsoft, and I spent a chunk of my career at Microsoft advocating for the – I was going to say advocating successfully, unsuccessfully. I'm not sure, but I'll just say advocating for (laughs) the role role and career advancement of the individual contributor tester, for better or for worse. Uh, I think at the time it was the right thing to do, so no regrets for that. But but that wasn't what I was pondering. I was pondering, I wonder – I was trying to think how much – Time of my career, I spent as a manager versus an individual contributor, despite that big chunk of my career dedicated to the let's look, I'm an IC role model and, look, and just look what we can do, IC being individual contributor. So, but I have a question for you before I start. Yeah. How did you become a manager? What was your path at Microsoft? You obviously weren't hired as a manager. How did it happen? Of course, you didn't even know you were an intern when you're.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That yeah. story so, from an early episode, <laughs> <yeah>. but. <laughs> It was a. How did you become a man? It was a different Microsoft. So, um, I've held before I came at Microsoft. My very first job was um, at Carl's Jr. in California, um, which for those who aren't in California, uh, it's a fast food joint. Um, and, and say what you will about that, uh, like there's still several of the burger recipes that. I have memorized. I love to cook. and What's um, what's a
0: burger recipe? You take hamburger and
1: you fry it. No, that's how you cook a hamburger. It's a hamburger recipe. Oh, the recipe is, oh,
0: put lettuce on the bun.
1: Sure. All right, great. Great. All right,
0: glad you're proud of this. Um, Go on.
1: But it actually also solidified um, my Spanish skills because no one spoke English in the kitchen. (laughs) Um, That's very cool. Then uh, when I went to college, uh was a dishwasher. Um, then it ended up going into um, a grocery store. And now, the reason why I bring all these... I guys, was going to ask. Yeah. I have no idea. You're like, what? What question are you answering? How did I get into management? Um, Just checking. So there's something... When I when I came at the Microsoft, I, I mean, we I already told a story that that um, around how I came here, um, but I was an intern for six months, and then I was a contractor uh, at Microsoft for eight months, um, uh, and then. I shifted to full time, and I spent I think a total of six months as an IC, and I have been a manager ever since. Um, now, the what led me to this uh, when I became a when I became a contractor, I worked for what I still view today as the best manager I've ever had, and even before I was a full timer, he told me. Um, Brent, you're going to get converted to full-time in the next couple of months, and I see you're going to be a manager within a year. And that actually freaked me out. He, um, I had had, in all of his other jobs, I had had, um, there's something about my work ethic, my style. I've noticed that I always get promoted into management pretty quickly. Um. In terms of like the Peter Principle They, they, um, they state a, a common phenomenon is people that get promoted in management Are often the best workers And I've always had a strong work ethic I always wanted to get stuff done um, uh, So I, I knew when he told me that That he was right That I would get promoted into management And it actually freaked me out Because every other job I had had, I had been promoted into management because I was good at doing that individual job. But once I got promoted into management, getting others to do as I asked was a challenge. And I ended up, um, in my early um, jobs, I ended up going, no, if I can't get my staff to do it, then I'm going to do it because it, it... I. My name is on this thing, and it's going to be of high quality. That actually freaked me out because every other job, I didn't really care. if People didn't really listen because there wasn't the consequence. Here, I was no longer at a job. I was at my career. So I had to pay active attention to what, what it meant to be a manager. How I, I got into it is I kicked ass as an IC. Should I have should been promoted into management because of that? No, and there's actually um, I've 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 blogged on this. There was a study done that says people do actually get promoted for the wrong reasons, and in this particular case, promoted because there's a subconscious belief in humans that they I guess they don't really recognize where it's a fundamentally different skill to be awesome at something than it is to get others to be awesome at that thing that you're awesome at. Yes. However, in this case, I recognize that. uh, I worked for a great manager, someone that I could learn from and mentor with. And then I had a very, when he told me that, he gave me sort of of a timeline and I had a very active, paying attention to who's succeeding and how are they motivating others and things of that sort. So very early on, um, I knew I would be going into management but knew that it would be leadership skill set that enabled me to survive it.
0: Interesting. A lot of things to comment on. One, just I'll pull out from the middle and then I want to share my story because it's a little bit different and and I think there's some points I want to talk about thing I wanted to bring out is you mentioned something v- very quickly that may have slipped by some people, but the job and the career. Yeah. And Go. I've had lots of jobs, and quickly my path is graduated college, taught music in the public school system for four years, went back to grad school. After grad school, master's in music composition. There's a as good as an English degree or maybe slightly worse. I <laughs> worked as a bicycle messenger for about six months. Fell into a job doing tech support at a music software company where I eventually learned. Well, actually, on my first day, became a software tester as well and eventually learned to program there. Uh, From there, fell into a contract job at Microsoft that fell into a full-time job at Microsoft. And it wasn't until I didn't even realize it was a career. It was still just a job to me for the first probably two years. I never thought... And today, people change jobs every five years as a matter of course. It's almost weird that they don't. But at the time, I never thought I would be at Microsoft as long as I was. So uh, I, early on in my career at Microsoft, I thought maybe I want to be a lead. But really, I I didn't know. I didn't care. If someone would have asked me to be a lead, I would have been a lead. And in those, times, in those days, that's kind of the way it worked.
1: I'll say that since I've known you, until recently, until the last few years, the majority of time that I've known you, you've, you've sort of been anti-management. Well, let me tell you. That's and, not- and, and specifically what I mean is you felt the, the burden of managing
0: people outweighed the benefits. Let me go on in- the, no, the subtlety of that because I don't believe there's a burden in managing people in general. But I want to talk about the subtlety of what you observe because there is something there. So the uh, point I was going to make is my first manager at Microsoft was uh, – we were both like, oh, my first manager at Microsoft was awful. And actually to back up another thing you said, I don't think I've ever had a great manager. I've had some good managers, some really crummy managers, but I've learned something, whether it's something to do, something to emulate, or something not to do or something not to emulate from all of them. So my – yep who I've become has been formed from my managers, but I've never had a great uh, management mentor. And I want to go into how I've learned about management in a minute as well. About five years into my Microsoft career, I became a lead. And the way I became a lead was doing well as an IC. I was writing a lot of code, a lot, a lot of code, product code, debugger code, some test code, uh, at the time, I was writing the I own maintenance and writing of the debugger for Windows. Also, was doing some kernel bug fixes and stuff I had no right to be doing, given my background. But they let me because I somehow managed to make it work. Uh, anyway, I went to my boss and said, I, you got to take some stuff off my plate. I I love working. I was, I was single. I was working 50, 60 hours a week and loving it. It wasn't a work-life balance thing. I enjoyed it. It was exhilarating. But I said, I, I can't. It's just too much. I'm getting overwhelmed. He goes, oh, we actually have a new hire starting on the team on Monday. How about he works for you? He can help you. I said, great. So, wait a minute. You tricked me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: then some other things that, like, oh, this, this person is working on the stress tools. They use the debugger. He should work for you too. And and over that team morphed into another team. And um, so I end up being a manager for about those. I drew some lines on the whiteboard while Brent was talking, but they're wrong. I think I ended up being a manager for about four years total, uh, growing up to a team of about 35, 40 people. And I was... Four years total
1: at Microsoft?
0: Well, four years total in that stint. Oh, okay. Okay, in that stint. Gotcha. Uh, At the end of it, uh, towards the end, Microsoft created this test architect role, and my manager said, you actually would be really good in this role. And I said, I don't know anything about testing. He said, yeah, you do. And that's when I started to really study testing. So if I'm going to get this test
1: architect role, I'm going to figure this out. I better out. know what this means.
0: And part <laughs> of that role was to – Was it took about six months because it said, I want you to move in this test architect role. I think you be great at it, but you have to help figure out who's going to lead your team and grow someone into that role. It took about six months to find the right – I think I knew who the right person was, but to get them ready for that role. I had never studied management at that point. I knew nothing other than just – my, what was in my soul and my guts.
1: And what you'd seen from examples.
0: And what I'd seen from examples. So yeah. I was very hands-off, which worked uh, well, which is kind of how I am now, but it works better in the culture here than at Microsoft. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't like management is was really one of the reasons I didn't like school teaching. I loved teaching kids to play music. That part of my day was fantastic dealing with all of the BS bureaucracy and red tape was one of the reasons I never went back to teaching Mm. and at Microsoft, especially at that time. And it got better in later years, but at that time and for a long period there management required a lot of bureaucracy and red tape and fitting into fitting everything into very good boxes and the training they offered, uh, Generally, management training I see is not about how to be a a good manager for your team and how to uh, and how to be a good leader for them, how to set good examples. It's about how to not get yourself in legal trouble. Yeah. So uh, I became a test architect for about four or five years. Um, the last few of that, I was in engineering excellence when that group, I think, actually made a difference at Microsoft. I took over as the director of test excellence for almost two years.
1: Who did you take over from?
0: Nimrod. I, I only say Nimrod because that's what his name resolved to in autocorrect. It, his alias. Jim, James Rodriguez. Jim Rodriguez.
1: Oh, Jimrod, not Nimrod.
0: Yeah, but, it, but when I typed up Jimrod in a Word doc, uh, it, it autocorrected to Nimrod. So I, that's, that's how I... That's my. That's my trigger to remember his name, Jim Rodriguez. He was only there for about 6 months. He replaced Ken Johnston, who was actually one of my better managers at Microsoft.
1: I didn't realize Ken was was in that role.
0: Yeah, Ken hired me into that team. I took over for Jim. EE started really going downhill. I left, took an IC role. That was always my plan. I was a ch- even though I was lead of a team of 5 people there. My plan was to always leave to an IC role. I went I continued on my I see career path stuff for a while through link and then through Xbox one and then through the science project and then uh, became a lead again uh, in the Microsoft teams team. Um, But at this point, now the difference between this stint in management and even in my EE and especially in my first stint is at this point I had actually read 10, 20 books, on management. So I had, and the story I tell about software testing is I first read a book about testing. I thought I knew everything about testing. I read another book, started to get different ideas. When I read a third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh book is when I began to form my own opinions. And the same thing happens reading books on management and leadership. Mm -hmm. And it's just as hard to learn to be a good manager as it is to become a good programmer. And I don't think enough people in management positions put that realize that. And I didn't realize it the first time I did it either. And I think not many managers, the first time they become a manager do, but I think by the time you've done it for a while, by the time you've made your second or third stint at it, fifth or sixth year at it, you better have started to study some things, not just directly about management, but reading books like drive, to understand how, what motivates people looking at, uh, other books. Some of my favorites. So Drive is a good book on just what motivates people. Some of my favorites are Michael Lopp's book on managing humans. He, he didn't not invent read that this, one. but he talks about the skill and the will matrix, which I use a lot. Okay. High skill, high will. Low skill, low will. High skill, low will. High will, low skill. People generally follow one of those, but unlike a bucket model of stack ranking, you generally want to try and manage your team towards high skill, high will positions, where they're in the... And I know we've talked about this before, coffee shop. You have people with low skill, you can get them training, get them coaching, mentoring, people with low will, maybe on the wrong job, but you want to get people the right work that makes them the most productive and most beneficial to your team. Uh, there's a actually a really good book I read fairly recently. It's called The Manager's Path, and I forget the author. Uh, but it talks all the way through, like, first becoming a lead to becoming a lead of leads to being a director and kind of the different things you take on. It's a pretty quick read, pretty well written. I'm about three-quarters of the way through a book written by a Google exec whose name I've forgotten, former Google exec, uh, called Radical Candor. Have you read this book? Nope. I think it's uh, very good as well. And the reason it's very good is uh, – the reason I say it's very good is I tend to fall in love with books that echo my own values. <laughs> <laughs> because and and there's things I've built up. Now that I've read a bunch of these books, I like, oh, yeah, this is either it solidifies what I'm already thinking, gives me a new way to think about some things I've been thinking.
1: Um, Everybody I, wants validation.
0: They do. They do. And just
1: be careful, though, because uh, every time you get validation validation, balance it with, okay, great. There's a 5% chance that both me and this book are wrong. Which is why I yeah. keep
0: reading so I can – everything Everything is a minor course correction at this time. It's like, okay. Yeah. And, and it's not like I wrote the book. It's going to have some things like, oh, I haven't thought of this before. It's a great idea. Yeah. But I've had a good time learning that. So anyway, that was my path where I was going. Uh, I forgot where I was going. So I've been in and out of management. I can't count the time, but I've probably been an IC more than a manager. But I have been really more than any time at Microsoft uh, for a lot of reasons. I don't want to go in the whole Unity is awesome, Microsoft sucks thing, but they're just different companies at different stages of maturity. I have really enjoyed my time as a manager at Unity. I haven't exactly put my finger on why yet. I think one thing is, though, a lot of it is just there's just so much freedom
1: in how I do it. Let me offer a suggestion. Uh, yes, then I'll go back to my subject. Okay. First and foremost, like over the years, I have read just a ton of, of books as well. And, and part of, just like what you mentioned, um, every manager that I've ever had, some of their style, their philosophy, got incorporated into my own. It's now at a point where it's really challenging to go, okay, what's the difference between these guys? I'll say the first manager I ever had was absolutely worse and I absolutely know what what I will never do as a result of of the things um, he did when I reported to him. But, and the other thing I would say, the thing that that I find kind of quirky like it seems like every management book if you don't have your own variant of a truth square, you're not building a proper management book. Every single one of them has their own variant of the truth square. Yeah. Like you mentioned the skillvish as well. I actually like uh, I can't pronounce the, the guy's name. So and I'm not even going to try out of respect, but it's a it's a concept of flow. Yeah. But there was another one and I, I don't remember the guy's name. Um, I'd like to give him credit, but he came up with this concept that I've actually used with all of my employees ever since I learned it. That really what you're trying to do as a, as a human being is you're trying to align your value system, your strengths, with a business that shares those values. And actually, that's what I think you've done with going to Unity. You you are highly adaptable. You like strategic thinking. You like the freedom and not to be bogged down by uh, bureaucracy.
0: I, and the big thing is is uh, I like to be trusted. Yeah. I think maybe I'll put this nicely, but I think uh, my experience at Microsoft as a manager was there was, and again, for very good reasons and not a big knock, but uh, almost too many guardrails put in place.
1: Yeah. And then, when you when you get to a particular size, there's 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 a lot of philosophies. This is a company thing. There's a lot of philosophies that um, move forward unquestioned, right? And and that that ends up being part of the ecosystem now. And it in and, and there's a um, Stephen Blank um, is probably my favorite author on the rise and fall of companies going from sort of the startup mentality to taking over the world and he's studied it very well but this other guy here's what i tell people and this is again not mine um but what everyone's looking for is a job that is the center of the following Three, um, you can think of it as a Venn diagram. Number one, everyone has a set of things that they do well. Everyone also has a set of things that they like to do. Lastly, um, there's a set of things that you can be paid to do. Yep. And really, you want to find something that's all three. And honestly, Alan, I think that's that's what it feels like you've done. So, yes, perhaps, perhaps. So, I
0: have a question I want to get, I want to ask you, but I need to address some things and evolve some things, and not get lose my train of thought in that process. So, one, I just want to be clear that, that skill in the well matrix was an example; it's not the center of my management philosophy. <laughs> and I think uh, one thing I've used more often is the ACB thing, which I'm working on renaming to, I forget what I've renamed it to the most recently, but another model. And as managers, we should build these models as much as we have, I don't want to compare them to design patterns, but just have some models for how you can maybe find the center of that Venn diagram. And one, I use is this ACB thing, uh, new name, I'll blog about it sometime, but you have some stretch work, some above work. Stuff that makes you learn. If you're not doing any work that's making you learn new stuff, or if you're not giving your employees work that makes them learn new stuff, they're not growing and they're not not—they're just stagnant. Yep. Then uh, you have a chunk of stuff that you're just good at. Yeah, it's, it's its work that needs to be done, of course. It's that current, that concrete stuff. Um, the stuff in the middle, you're like, this is in your wheelhouse, stuff you're great at. And then every once in a while we have to do some kind of grunt work. Yeah, I have to go you know, shovel out the horse bin or in software – I need to go. I I need to be the guy that goes make sure all these VMs are up and running uh, because I don't have an automated tool for it. Whatever it is, some sort of it's not, it's not stretch work. It's not something I'm, it needs to be done. So I'm going to jump in and do it. For me, it was, I'm going to go fix a bunch of these static analysis bugs. I don't really want to do it, but it's a good place for me to jump in. Uh, So it's an example of a model, and we have multiple of these models, and that, that, This and the Venn diagram and the skill of the will, there's a lot of overlap. There's another Venn overlap Mm -hmm. between what those target. But the point is through observing, through your own experiences, through your own values, through what you read and discover in books, what you read and discover on the internet, uh, both in blogs and I think hbr.org is a great uh, source for a lot of great uh, ideas and management and leadership. That's where I first saw the hint of what I later Developed more into the World of Warcraft guide to project management, which I've mentioned before, so I won't do now. Um, I can elaborate later if if someone gets in the mailbag and chooses so. If you want to get good at it, you have to absorb from a whole bunch of different sources and from that form your own management philosophy. So my question, but even you,
1: that's not good enough. You have to act. You have to try things out. Uh,
0: yeah, and I tell my team this is part of my <laughs> management philosophy. Is I tell my team is. Everything I do is sort of in the agile way. So I'm going to try shit all <laughs> the time. And before it's perfected, before it's complete, uh, I'm going to try it and see if it works. And if it is, we'll do more of it or elaborate. And if not, I'll throw it away and we won't do it again uh, all the time. Always trying crap. Always trying to see what works. So I want to lead that as part of what I do. and But let me ask you, do you have, and if so, can you share – the Brent Jensen management philosophy. How do you? What are your? What are the core things you try and do as a manager? Do you have you thought about this before?
1: At that, um, at a abstract, yes. Uh, it's it's actually very easy. Um. So what are my guardrails? Okay, first and foremost, I will communicate myself as my my team's manager just because that's the easiest way to explain the concept. Okay? First and foremost, I don't view myself as my team's manager. I view myself as their MSP. Oh, God. It's an acronym. It is. I view myself as their management service provider. <laughs> okay? And every time I share it, that's what I get. I get giggles. Because uh, it sounds very managed. Managerial. Uh,
0: I can see the pointy hair growing out the side yeah. of
1: your head. Now, But there's an important distinction in why I view MSP as a better way of describing it than manager. Because if I'm, so let's say, Alan, I was your management service provider, okay, mm-hmm. versus your manager. The difference is who fires who? Ah, okay. If I'm your MSP, you're my customer, not my slave or work doer. So by, by reinforcing myself as an MSP, it, it helps me to stay balanced at what my job is actually to do. It's to help grow not only the project – but you, Alan, if you leave my team, you fired me. Okay? And now, if it's mutual, uh, for example, there are many times, uh, actually just this last year, that I had a report. And I could tell that what he could be, uh, he was out of balance. The stuff he liked to do, uh, he could be paid to do the stuff he did well. On my team, but it wasn't the stuff he liked to do, and I'm like, let's let's find you a different place. Um, the second, um, the MSP is a is a big one. The second thing that really is the other guardrail, and it's probably aligned with um, the first in, in some great degree. Ten years from now, the code that you're working on today is irrelevant. And and pretty much anyone listening to this podcast, this is going to be, for the most part, true. I'm happy to, like one of the things that I'm happy with, uh, uh, I've mentioned this before, I have a test harness that I patented back in 1998. That thing is still in use. This surprises me. Um, I'm a little, I, I kind of know why, because uh, the way we designed it, we designed it to be adaptable and flexible. Um, but that's a rarity. Um, what persists, though, 10 years from now are those people who you interacted with. So as a management, I'm like, we're here to go. Get things done, grow the career, grow the business, but I do view myself as more beholden to the the people I work with and work underneath me than anything else. Okay, so th- that's the primary guardrails for me.
0: Okay, so. You could work on concising that up a little bit, but I get it, I get it. So, uh, mine's simple. So, I have two big points in mine, and these have come from, again, my own values and finding things that I've liked and latched onto from some of the things I've studied. So, I'm going to talk about, I think, two books I haven't talked about, um, which, again, they, yeah, that's how I would like to do it. That fits how I function. And very similar to the MSP, you've probably never read... Uh, read Hoffman's book called The Alliance. No. Reed Hoffman is uh, one of the founders of LinkedIn. Uh, wrote a book called The Alliance and says, in today's workforce, uh, it's not the job. Like my dad got a job out of high school and worked there till, pretty much until he retired. did consulting for the last five years of his career, but he worked at this company for like 30 years. Um, that world does not exist for most people anymore. Although i worked at Microsoft for 22, but uh, things happen. The difference is it's like say say you work for me. Okay. It's similar to the MSP, but you didn't talk about what's in it for you. And we're going to make an alliance. There so different kinds of alliances can be uh, they're like a tour of duty is what Reed Hoffman calls them. Let's take a given time period, a year, 6 months, 18 months. Here's what we're going to accomplish together. I am going to help you be successful in your job by doing A, B, and C, and in that that's going to help me and the company be successful by doing D, E, and F. And we have a, a pact and alliance together, because I think that goes two ways. I think I get the MSP thing, because mm-hmm. my job is to help you be successful. But I also recognize that in helping you to be successful, I need, we need to both agree and understand how that helps the company, and, and me in some cases, be successful as well. We need to grow together uh, in this journey, in this alliance. Yeah, the- And then at the end of that alliance, we can either re-up, we can uh, go our separate ways. I may help you move to another team or a different company if it's a better fit like you talked about or we can do a different kind of a, we, maybe we're doing a transformational alliance. Like you want to move to a uh, data science architect role and for example, a different role. Like when my manager helped me move to a, uh, from a manager to just architect role. We're going to take, like here's what I'm going to get at the end, here's what you're going to get at the end, let's work on this together, we're in it together. hmm uh, so it's a slight variation on your MSP, uh, but it, it's, it has in, in practicality.
1: Really well. It's, it's very much the same. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Like in it, order, it, it in order, well. in order to, in order for me to be a, a solid MSP, um, I have to guide those people towards the center of the Venn diagram with the, with the business constraints, right? I, I cannot put them in a position, well, I mean, I can, but it's foolish. I can put them in a position where they only do the things that they do well and they like to do, but they can't get paid for. And by paid for, I've mapped that to sort of the review model. Like, great, you can do these two things, but this is what's going to happen at the review model. Let's, Let's continue searching for the thing that's, that 's going to be right in the center in terms of the partnerships and the alliance stuff, like what you described very aptly is is a hundred percent number one the best relationships, the best um, managers i 've ever had uh, is where they 've didn 't view me as a report but viewed me as their peer they 're part of the yeah. team
0: I think they 're ally right, and one of the things anecdotally i 've heard from multiple people on my team without me even like trying to do this was they just appreciated that I was there to bounce ideas off of. And I thought, well, geez, what else would I do as a manager? That's like one of the best services as mm-hmm. you put it. I can provide. Right. I'm happy. I, I have some experience. I have some ideas by all means, bounce your ideas off of me.
1: And then cross team, like this Alliance model. If you're uh, the other, the other thing, uh, it's not really related to management but one of my driving philosophies is NIH kicks ass. <laughs> and for those who are not familiar with the the acronym NIH is not invented here. Right. And you really need to create and grow negotiation skills and practice creating win-win scenarios to make these alliance models work cross yeah. team.
0: Yeah. And plenty and plenty of nuance there. Uh, before we run out of time, the other half of my, the second of my 12, no, pretty much two uh, things that drive me as a manager or, or frameworks I rely on. One is the Alliance model. Other one is taken, have you ever read Steve Denning's book? Do um, you know who Steve Denning is? Yes. Business author, writes for Forbes magazine all the time. He is a, not a software guy, a business guy who discovered Agile and says, and just, kind of embraced it in the business sense and wrote a book called The Leader's Guide to Radical Management. And you can, it barely mentions Agile, but you can see some of the Agile principles seeping through his ideas on how to lead a team. And one of the things from his book is basically give your team a framework they can work in and then get out of their way. Amen. And that's, I've always had that philosophy. One of the reasons my last team really graded on me. I mentioned my blood pressure has gone down. It was a a team driven by micromanagement and that is just not who I am. I want to give I don't want to I don't ignore my team at all but I do want to give them I want to give them their own guardrails make sure they know what our alliance is where we're going what they need to do and then give them room to learn and to grow and ask questions and I have some people doing really well I have to challenge them to learn more to one of the guardrails I put up is you must learn to be successful on this team so what did you learn this week but building a framework around I, the things I value, the things I think that will make the individual and the company successful and talk about those to the team uh, make sure they know what those things are and then get out of their way they need to, they need some room to grow and learn and I do this with the, obviously the more junior people need a little bit more handholding, but at some stage i expect this is probably especially true on a team that's geographically dispersed but i expect independence and autonomy
1: yeah the, um as you were talking it reminded me of uh the safe planning event and try to do it in in a in a succinct nutshell so i can i can drive my point home right what First and foremost, what they are saying uh, when SAFE does this planning, right, there's the fail-fast principle. There is uh, accountability and there is a power empowerment. And um, probably a topic for another day, but uh, we could philosophize on can you have empowerment without accountability? The, my short Ooh. answer is no. No. In a safe planning meeting, you have a, a, a bunch of scrum teams. Let's say five, okay, and they are treated uh, independently. So they are they are proactively assigned items that they're going to own for the sprint um, at the very beginning. And um, the neat thing about a safe planning event is essentially in two days you plan out the entire three months. I. Did this um, a couple years ago at Microsoft, and it's the first time in my entire career at Microsoft where a plan that was built in a, in essentially a day for a team of forty uh, was nailed on time to the day. It was really freaking cool. Anyway, I think I think it's a fluke. But go on. Uh, they. So I left shortly after that, and they continued to be able to do that. Huh. Um, no, it's, it's, it's the model. It's because knowledge is shared up front. We can go into bigger detail. At, so the planning event, so you, you get assigned these tasks and then the teams can horse trade amongst other teams. So if they got assigned a task it makes more sense for another, on another scrum team than on theirs, they're allowed to trade these things across. Okay. They have to go through the process of building a, a, a sprint plan, breaking these things down into stories, and at the end of it, they say, okay, based off of our resourcing, these are the objectives we're going to accomplish. And before a single line of code, and every sprint team has to do this, they say these are our, our objectives we're going to accomplish sprint by sprint, and these are our stretch objectives. Now, the thing that I think is fascinating is at the end of this, there is a team that serves as the business team. And they go sprint team by sprint team, and they look at the objectives, and then they score what's known as business value points. Now, that business value points, the value of that is is now – so planning has gone through. Then we now have an execution plan. We now have a solid vision for the sprint. Now the business team is going through – They're realizing that what they were hoping for versus the reality of what's going to get delivered is now with, they know that within a couple of days, in addition to, because they have to go and put these business value points, they now communicate feedback back to that that, uh, scrum team. Each of your objectives, this is what we think is the worth of these objectives. So even before a line of code, you have a complete three-month end-to-end plan, including a fail-fast opportunity. Was that too much?
0: You didn't it, understand that. No, I understood. I I not un- quite understand the segue from uh, give people a framework they can work and then get out of
1: their way. Yeah. So it's 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 not just get get out of their way. You still are accountable to be the representative for the business. Right, um, And what this does is it gives – it is a framework that allows management and the execution team to work copesthetically together. Gotcha. The,
0: and, the one thing I'd uh, – the other book I'll throw in there that you sprinkle in with the Denning thing is the one-minute manager, which is knowing yeah. when – rather than manage all the time, micromanage, just know that even if you're out of their way – you have to pay enough attention to know when to dive in, make course corrections before it's too late, fail fast, whatever you need to do. Jump in, take care of the, whatever correction you need to make, and then step back out of the way. And that's, frankly, how I scale across a team of a, a large number of direct reports. How, and it's not...
1: The, the, I guess the, thing, the way you said it, because a lot of the ways managers implement that, and I've seen a lot of people do that, they do it in a reactive style. They're like, okay, I'm going to give them the free, freedom until they've screwed up. This model tells, tells people up front, this is what we see, that's the value in what you're planning to produce.
0: Yeah, I think, and my- I
1: love that proactivity yeah, and the adaptability you, yeah, of the. system. and I think
0: that's important. You do need to be proactive about it, not wait for, recognize, don't wait for it to fail completely, but recognize that, oh, things are a little off course, Somebody's me just dive in here, give a little coaching. Uh, a lot of, I do more coaching and, than I do managing. Pro, yeah, definitely. Anyway, uh, I think we're about out of time, but this was a fun little digression into management. Thank you,
1: Brent. One last thing.
0: Uh, Sure, because I don't have shit to do. And
1: you're welcome. (laughs) Me neither. As a manager, if you want to fake it till you make it, and you don't know what you're doing, then if there's there's one technique you could do that gets you most of the way there, it's just study the Socratic method. Just ask questions.
0: Okay. Maybe more on that next time. Maybe.
1: All we'll right. see. I'm still Alan. And I am not. We'll see you next time. Bye.